right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the FearCast. This is the podcast dedicated to OCD and anxiety and anxiety spectrum disorders and getting your life back. I'm your host, Kevin Foss, and I'm a licensed therapist specializing in OCD and anxiety disorders. Uh, Thank you all so much for joining me today. Um, If you have a question for the podcast, go over to fearcastpodcast.com and send me a question over there by clicking on the submit a question link. You can also send an audio question over to me if you join me at uh, at Instagram. Send me a message over there and uh, press the little microphone button there. Uh, I'm fearcastpodcast over at the Instagrams. As I mentioned before, um, audio questions, if you record your voice. It does go to the top of the list of questions that will be answered, and you can answer those or send me those questions over at uh, Instagram. And again, of course, doing that over at um, uh, the pod or at fearcastpodcast.com. Send me the uh, recorded audio, record your voice, send me the file over questions at fearcast fearcastpodcast.com. Anyways, plenty of ways. So I hope everybody is doing well. Um, I'm. Um, uh, October is the craziest month. It, there's a 30 degree weather swing from last week to this week. Last week was like a lovely, like 60 degrees Fahrenheit. This weekend, 90, mid 90s. It's awful. Now, again, I can complain about anything. It's one of my spiritual gifts. I'm very good at it. Um, I, I perhaps ought to not be as good at it. And yet, here I am. Um, Uh, Well, why don't I just jump into it today? So today is going to be a bit of a combination. I am going to be answering a question I. I and the very special guest will be answering a question about uh, moral scrupulosity. So uh, this question was sent in a while ago, and uh, I was lucky enough to get some time with the um, uh, brilliant John Hirschfield, who was able to share some insights about just what moral scroop is, how is it, uh, why is it OCD, how does it differ from you know other types of OCD, how is it kind of permeating all other types of OCD or other subtypes of OCD. So this is a really fun conversation. Um, I, I always love having John on. Uh, he's He seems to be the, the resident um, philosopher in regards to uh, scrupulosity and or uh, to OCD. And I am uh, 100% certain, as one can be, obviously, uh, that uh, he would say that he is not. And that is fine. I, I look forward to having that discussion with him next time. He is on. So let me just tell you a little bit about John uh, before we uh, before we st- uh, start this episode. So John Hirschfeld is the director of the Center for OCD and Anxiety, Shepherd Pratt's private pay outpatient treatment center for individuals with obsessive compulsive and anxiety related disorder and the director of the OCD program at The Retreat, um, where uh, Shepard Pratt offers residential treatment uh, uh, for those who can benefit from higher level of care. Uh, He is the author of six books on on OCD and mindfulness and CBT. Uh, He he is a regular featured speaker at mental health conferences and webinars, and is the uh, curator and moderator of Shepard Pratt's OCD and Anxiety Lecture Series. So, Without further ado, here is my conversation on moral scrupulosity with John Hirschfield. All right. Well, John Hirschfield, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast yet again. Thanks for having me back. Always a pleasure. Well, um, I, I, I roped you in, as we were talking about earlier, I roped you into talking about this since I know that you have a, a, 
uh, an, an appreciation for, affinity for, and especially special knowledge on moral scroop. You have you, you have a, a doubtful look on your face right now, but that's fine. Well, I've, I've been told this. I, I don't really know why. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think you know. I've written some some blogs and done some some webinars and things like that. So that's the way the uh, this OCD specialty world is. If you're sort of noisy about a particular topic, people start pointing you out as as the expert. But it's not like I've done any sort of special research or anything. Um, I sometimes wonder if. People think I know a lot about moral scrupulosity because I'm an especially compassionate and sensitive person. And so when I'm working with people, I'm really, you know, thinking about how they're relating to their self-worth and their their role in society. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's the opposite, you know, where it's like they just think I'm like, John's kind of a sociopath. So I wonder if uh, maybe there's something he knows that I don't because he seems to not be worrying about these things than I am. <laughs> It's, well, you know, I, I, I like the ambiguity of both the ends of that, and I think that we can let the, uh, let the listeners decide. The, I mean, the, the definition of expert that I was told very early on was being an expert is reading one more book than the other guy. <laughs> That's interesting. So, That's interesting. And if you've written one more blog, yeah, you're the, you're the guy. Yeah, I've certainly written one more self-help book. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? And you've got that going on. So to that end, thank you so much for joining us to be the expert on moral scrupulosity today. Happy to, happy to do so. <laughs> All right. Well, um, so we'll, we'll talk for the, for the itinerary for today, for everyone listening. We'll talk a little bit about uh, what moral scrup is, how it shows up, um, you know, some, some telltale signs that maybe it's, it's infecting and, or I impacting the way that you think and interact with the world around you. And then um, we have a question from a listener about um, kind of a, a moral theme. Uh, so I'll read that and then we'll kind of go over and maybe what this person might think about, do, challenge. Um, as as uh, as a way to start overcoming this fear or kind of getting a getting a new relationship with it, so sounds good. So, John, tell us a little bit about what moral scroop is, why it fits, what why it's a subtype of OCD, and um, how, how how everyone listening can eradicate it forever out of their <laughs> minds. Well, as you know, you can't eradicate it forever because you know concern with your morality is part of what it's like to be a person. You know, we say with OCD, right? It's like you learn to accept that you have unwanted thoughts, and yeah. uh, and and that's okay. You're supposed to have unwanted thoughts; they're just not supposed to control you. But I think with morality, it's it's such a it can be such a huge thing. It's even defining it. It's like you can define it in so many ways. So usually, the way it's defined, I think it's appropriate is uh, kind of uh, an alternative to religious scrupulosity. Right. Mm -hmm. So that word scrupulosity, we think about religious scrupulosity. So these are people where their OCD seems to go after their their faith or their faith tradition and the focus is very much on what if I've sinned or what if this is a thought that's not allowed in my religion? What if I'm not practicing my religion perfectly? So you could have the same relationship with a higher power that you might have with society at large, right? So so what if instead of, what if I took the word God out and I just replaced it with, you know, my community or society or, or you know, the world or something like that? So am I participating in society the right way? Am I, am I valuing the right things? Am I behaving the right way? Do other people think I'm behaving the right way? Would I, would I be rejected from society if they found out that I thought these things or felt these things or did these things? So moral scrupulosity tends to be like that. Similar to religious scrupulosity, it's taking something small and making it very big and the, and the kind of focus of your functioning. Uh, but it's in the context of, am I a good enough person? 
So then there's that idea of being good enough, which we were talking about before we, we started this, which is, you know, a lot of OCD is like that. Did I wash my hands enough? Did I lock the door enough? Um, am, I, am I sure enough about this thing? So it would make sense that it would also apply, apply to, am I a good enough person? Have I thought through enough my self-worth? And, um, and then there's even broader than that, which is just, you know, what is it? It, it, it's sort of a, I think when you live with OCD for a certain period of time, mm-hmm. it's undertreated or it's not treated at all, you start to develop philosophical problems, right? You start to think things about the world or yourself that make it very difficult to function, like, I'm bad, right? I'm not good enough or I'm not lovable. And um, a lot of the treatment, even if we're talking about ERP and CBT, is kind of breaking down some of those philosophical problems that are getting in your way so that you can just sort of be. That's a, that's a, well, first off, thank you for that definition. Yeah, we, we often hear moral group kind of tied to religious group. And it's, there is this, defin- this idea of perfectionism. Am I enough? But who is that in relation to? Is it in relation to society or to God or to yourself? Um, and, and yeah, it's tough to kind of pull, pull those apart for that person to see what, which one is the offended party here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little more complicated than it's just religious group for atheists, right? It's right. It's more like um, if you look at other kinds of OCD, the decision not to do a compulsion, the decision to say I've washed my hands enough or I don't need to wash my hands in this situation, right. or I've given enough attention to whether or not I just hit someone with my car, I'm going to move on. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, really kind of think of any kind of OCD you've ever heard of, mm-hmm. the decision to leave well enough alone and move on almost always feels like a moral decision. The values choice. Yeah, yeah exactly. right enough? Yeah, so am I making these decisions in, in the right way? And also, who am I to even decide, right? It, it's almost, sometimes you see this, you see this a lot actually in moral scrupulosity, kind of underlying fear of narcissism, right? Mm. Who am I? What makes me so special that I can decide, you know, that it's time to move on? Mm-hmm. You know, why would I, why should I judge my own common sense, right? That, that feels arrogant and selfish. And it's ironic because just like someone who is a, you know, let's say an excessive hand washer because their OCD tells them they're never clean enough, they're going to wash their hands so much that they're going to scrape away the protective oils from their skin and it's going to crack and they're going to bleed and they're going to get infected. An infection, yeah. Yeah, right. And so the, the very thing that they're afraid of is being caused by the OCD. Mm-hmm. And and if this underlying core fear of being, you know, selfish and narcissistic and thinking about yourself all day, well, that's also what happens in moral scrupulosity. You become completely absorbed with matters of the self and you forget to just, uh, you know, enjoy a meal or a conversation and you kind of relent and let yourself just be. Right. That's, right. that's what I love about treating OCD. I mean, any kind of OCD is that when people start to really make progress, they start to just let themselves be right they get let themselves just sort of experience life as it as it arises and oh this is a nice song end of story i'm enjoying the song end of story that all those pesky philosophical details and it's it do you think that philosophical question is built into the human experience or is there something unique or something is in in the resolution of this you're kind of saying i'm just going to let myself be is is that letting go of some intrinsic part of being human? Oh, that's a really good question. I think that, uh, you know, when, I, when I'm saying letting yourself be, I'm kind of referencing mindfulness, and mm-hmm. I don't mean that we are expected to be that way all of the time. It's, it's more of, uh, do we have access to that space? 
Can we come back to that space? Can we wander off, mm-hmm. you know, get absorbed into a movie or a story or a song or a, an idea? And then, uh, you know, when, when we've had enough, come back. Is there an anchor point to come back to? Mm-hmm. And that point would be just being. But but you're correct, right? It is the it is the human nature to think and to come up with stories and to wander off and and to wonder. And so we don't want to get rid of the human condition. We just want to, you know, soften it a little bit. People with OCD uh, have a tendency to, um, you know, pay more attention to details that it seems like other people are just disregarding as junk mail. And so they're distracted a great deal of the time. We get to help people be less distracted. Yeah. Because, I mean, yeah, it's... It, it, it's tricky. I, I, I always find moral scroop trickier than perhaps religious scroop. And I know that a lot of people would find that find that reversed. In a sense, religious scroop, you can go back to a book, you can go back to a tradition, you can go back to something that says this is kind of what we do. But with moral, there's who, def- as you kind of pointed out, who defines what's right? Defi- well, and it varies. It varies from culture to culture as well. It varies from situation to situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a lot of times, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think you could also make the argument that the, you know, the presence of a book, this is, well, here are the rules. Anybody could obsess about, well, maybe I'm not interpreting the rules correctly, right? So, the, the, them being written down isn't always as helpful as it would appear, right? Well, I've met that person, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I agree, Mor- morality has a certain abstract nature to it that's a little bit little bit more challenging and that's why i think the the treatment of it is more relational and less well you know go practice doing a bunch of scary things and and you'll habituate to that fear uh it's something more along the lines of um maybe taking yourself this seriously isn't helping you or the people that you care about and how do we find ways to just just lighten the load a little bit on on how you know where is it written that you have to know how good a person you are mm-hmm the fact that it's not written anywhere should give you a little bit of freedom. <laughs> yeah. 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 The way you're describing this, I've, it's, it's self-compassion treatment sounds overwhelmingly important in, to the, to someone who's going through this kind of saying that this, this level of stress you're putting yourself through to try to be right. Perfect is at the end of the day, unhelpful. It's causing you more stress, causing you more pain. And kind of the example of that hand-washing person, it's, it's probably going to be causing some of the problems in your life. So, so to let go of some of that is a self-compassion move to no longer heap this pain on yourself. Well, ironically or not, self-compassion is the exposure therapy. Right? If you think about it, right? the, the unwanted thought is maybe I'm bad in some way that's unacceptable. And the compulsions are various forms of self-criticism, self-deprecation, self-punishment, mm. self-analysis. And the worst thing you could possibly do is let yourself off the hook and like you know maybe deal with the uncertainty that you've gotten away with something. Mm-hmm. Those are the scariest things to do. So self-compassion sounds nice, you know, it's only a nice thing, but it's actually pretty terrifying to treat mm-hmm. yourself the way you might treat somebody you care about, you know, when you have moral scrupulosity. Right, right. And I think that self-compassion for a lot of people can be confusing, especially when we hear self-reassurance isn't the way to go, right? Um, it's compulsion. You're trying to tell yourself that you're fine, that you're okay. But I think a lot of people, when they hear self-compassion, they think it's telling yourself, I'm okay. Because could you go over, like, maybe briefly, what is the yeah. difference between a, a, a reassurance 
and the, the negative with bad one and a self-compassion statement. So I would make the argument that self-compassion, although it sounds nice, is really just honest. It's intellectually honest and objective. Mm -hmm. right? So when you are calling yourself a jerk or like the worst person ever lived or a bad person or whatever it is, the, the kind of labeling and name calling, mm -hmm. it's object. It's not objective. It's not, it's, you know, it's just, that's just like, you know, how does uh, the, the dude put it? That's just like, you know, your opinion, man, you know? <laughs> Objective would be to say I'm having thoughts about being, you know, not good enough. I'm having thoughts about even I'm having thoughts about being a jerk or, you know, I'm thinking I'm not so great, you know, mm -hmm. feeling guilty, I'm feeling like I'm not a very good person. Okay, that's objective. Let's start with that. That's called mindfulness. That's just calling things what they actually are instead of being lost in their stories. And then uh, the next thing would be to recognize that... Um, you know, not only are you not entitled to the answer to the question, but um, you're also not that special. <laughs> you're not that mm -hmm. important, right? Like other people feel doubt, other people feel fear, other people feel anxiety, other people feel less than. So if that's what you're feeling right now, yeah, that's right. Because that's what it's like to be a person. People feel that way sometimes, especially when they're thinking about being bad, right? Mm -hmm. And if you might, you might not have noticed, but I just covered two of the three components of Kristen Neff's uh, self-compassion which is mindfulness and common humanity mm -hmm. right so then the third component is the one that people get kind of frustrated with which is self-kindness because it just sounds like you know i don't deserve to be kind to myself or you know be nice to yourself give yourself a hug that stuff it's kind of gross you know? um so when i think about self-kindness again i like to think about being objective what you what you tend to be doing when you're criticizing yourself compulsively or otherwise is, is looking at things through the lens of, I should have known better. Mm. And I would argue that that's not possible. Like you did whatever you did in the moment that you did it because you knew whatever you knew at the moment that you did it. It just so happens that upon reflection, you've decided that you're wrong, but that's a different problem than thinking you should have known better. That's mm. impossible. And so it's kind of a waste of time. I should have known better. What would be a good use of my time? That's the question you should be asking. What would be helpful now? What would be useful now? So you're ruminating about something, you think uh, you hurt somebody's feelings in a conversation three days ago, and maybe that means you're a bad person. All right, so like ruminating about that's not going to be helpful. Calling yourself a jerk is not going to be helpful. Thinking, I should have known better than to talk to that person that way is not going to be helpful. What would be helpful? Sometimes the answer is, you know, some kind of uh, traditional exposure-based thing, you know, I don't know, writing a script or mm -hmm. telling yourself, yeah, maybe I hurt this person's feelings or whatever. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the, what's helpful is... Um, you know, practicing some kind of centering or rain meditation or something like that. Sometimes what's helpful is just taking the risk of saying, yeah, I'm just going to drop it. I'm just going to not go there. And if I notice that I'm there, I'm going to drop it again and again and again, like a hot potato until my brain gets to the point that there's no more work to be done. Mm. And all of that is self-compassion, right? None of that sounded particularly nice, but it's positioning you to do what would be helpful for the person that's suffering. And that's you. Yeah. I, I I could see moral script being especially susceptible to shame. That maybe someone justifies that compulsive process because of a sense of shame, just not feeling like they're good enough. So I don't deserve self-compassion because I am just garbage. Yeah, so a CBT therapist might call that emotional reasoning, right? And... Um, I don't deserve self-compassion because I am just garbage. Well, you know, you also don't deserve 
an answer to the question that your brain's coming up with, which is, you know, why did I do that thing? And what were my intentions? And you know, how, how am I going to make sure it never happens again? Those Ooh. are things that people want, but we don't really get them and we're certainly not entitled to them. So it's okay to be uncomfortable about it. Mm-hmm. The shame is there because uh, the, the door is open for the consideration that you're a bad person. Right? Guilt is when you feel bad about something that you did and shame is when you think you're a bad person. Mm-hmm. That door doesn't have to be open at all. Mm-hmm. You don't have to actually consider it. I know that sounds very scary because it's like, well, what about the people out there that we know are really bad? You know, shouldn't they self-reflect, right? Yeah. But I'm not talking about Hitler. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about like, you're just a person, right? And no, you're not perfect. And yes, you're going to make mistakes. And so I, I think it, it's true that when you get into these very heady kinds of OCD, you start to convince yourself, you know, you know darn it, I, I should be able to figure this out. Well, no, you, you're not, it's not available to you. You're going to have to come up with another way of dealing with the fact that you're not sure if you did the right thing. And the shame is there because, you know, that, uh, come, you know, my, part of that is the OCD trying to push you to try, even though you know it can't be done, right? Mm-hmm. In the same way that it pushes you to try to make sure your hands are 100% clean. Um, and, uh, you know, part of that also comes from, you know, your parents and your, and your culture and your past. I, I know it's a little bit uh, taboo to talk about psychodynamic therapy or relational <sighs> therapy on a show about OCD. I mean, God forbid we talk about where people got their ideas this from. This will be the last time John Hirschfeld will be on the podcast. <laughs> That's it. No, go ahead. <laughs> You're no longer welcome here. <laughs> but I do find that when I'm working with morally scrupulous people, there's um, it's more than just uh, random intrusive thoughts and then they're mishandling them and being compulsive about them. It's it's very much intertwined in, in, in the essence of, of their being, which you, you can't disconnect from their past. Mm-hmm. Um, I see an extraordinarily high number of people with moral scrupulosity of trauma histories mm. who developed, uh, you know, core beliefs that they're bad because it's the best explanation for why somebody who was set up to love them decided to hurt them. Yeah, can't think of any better explanation than that. And then you're stuck with it in adulthood. Mm-hmm. Right. And in these situations, for let's say this this person, where. Do you start working on the OCD first? Do you start working on the trauma? Or is ultimately that going to be intertwined and going to be worked on together for this person? Um, I think in psychotherapy in general, you want to look at the the whole person, right? And then you want to look at what behaviors are um, impairing them the most immediately, sort of start getting involved with that and pay attention to what it does to what whatever other things there might be. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, certainly in more severe cases, you have to work on multiple sides at the same time. You have to do the dance between the OCD and the trauma and the depression, for example, uh, and the substance use disorder, right? You can't say like, well, keep doing your drugs, but I'm going to just work on the OCD. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, sometimes that means referring out. I mean, I'm spoiled because I, I work in a residential program where we have a multidisciplinary team and I can mm-hmm. kind of design a team around, you know, all of the problems at once. Yeah. Um, but sometimes what you can do is sort of, okay, in the immediate term, this person is, let's say, engaging in specific rituals, certain types of avoidance. Uh, they're asking reassurance in a very specific way. And that part of it is is really just OCD. So if we can work on that and start really working on some response prevention there, let's see what happens. So then what happens, let's say, 
with somebody who has uh, co-occurring trauma, the trauma starts to come up yeah. and, and take center stage. So while you're holding the OCD down, you can then perhaps address some of the trauma. And you find that, again, it's not it's not like they're these two completely different conditions. They're, they're different versions of, of them, you know, they're like they're, they're different demons, you know, one has horns and the other one has, you know, wings or whatever, but they're, you can, you can work on them at the, at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting is as, as you're describing this, I think this, you know, maybe, maybe in OCD land, we hear a lot about, you know, have to accept the uncertainty, have to push into, push into that feared thought. Maybe that's, you know, that it's an older way of thinking. But especially with this conversation about moral scroop, I hear a lot of, I heard a lot less of embrace the possibility that maybe you're a bad person as the forefront. And that's more of an afterthought. Yeah, I think, I think that's probably fair. I mean, I think, again, whether you had OCD or not, you have to accept certainly that through somebody's eyes, you're just unacceptably bad. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I could just as a, as a maybe this isn't appropriate for the podcast, but like as a, you can edit it out later or not, I'll let you decide. But like as a non-believing Jew, there's still places in the world I can't go to without yeah. being looked at as a demon that needs to be destroyed. Mm. Right. And so, there, so, so when you think about what that really is, right? Like anybody at any point could be looked at from one angle and and, and just be identified as unacceptably bad. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, usually people with moral scrupulosity aren't worried about, well, what are people going to think about me in Afghanistan, right? They're, they're thinking about, what, what are my neighbors going to think about me, or that sort of thing. Yeah. But, but fundamentally, you have to deal with the uncertainty that however it is that you've concluded it's time to stop beating yourself up, there's, there's that room for that possibility that you got it wrong and, and that, you know, maybe you're not in the eyes of whoever you care about, uh, you know, so great. Yeah. But I agree with your point that I tend to shy away from things like um, kind of overt exposure scripts about, you know, being a terrible person because they tend to generate a lot more depressive mood stuff. And it ends up just kind of devolving into self-criticism, which is really kind of the compulsion that we're trying to get rid of in the first place. And, And yeah, I think that while I would still say uncertainty, acceptance for the win, maybe not leaning so hard on that idea of like, well, maybe you're a bad person, maybe you're not. It's more of like, maybe I haven't assessed this thoroughly enough, or maybe I or, or not, right? So, it's, the, Reed Wilson talks about this, the generic yeah. sense of uncertainty as the, that's, as opposed to the content-oriented sense. Yeah. And, and there's no test we're ever going to be able to do that's going to tell us, you know, what percentage bad we are versus good, right? Yeah. We're never going to be able to, you know, do some assessment and it's going to say, John is 75% good, which is very good. Kevin's. I mean, it's it's enough to pass your uh, licensing exam. So. That's true. That's true. So, um, so, so it's, it's, it's an answer, as you said, we're never going to get. So getting into that cycle is ultimately just going to be a useless process. And there's almost this mix of just us as humans, we aren't going to be, I mean, Whatever that perfect enough is, that voice will always say, yeah, but there's, there's always that one more thing that you could do. You could be a little bit more perfect. And, you know, shouldn't you, as a good person who's striving to be a good person, shouldn't I put in that effort just to do that, that little bit more? Because that's, isn't that what good people do? Yeah, I don't know. 
I don't know what good people do. I mean, it, that's an idea. Perhaps that is what good people do. I mean, how would I know? How would you know? I mean, I think this is the problem is that we make these assumptions. We, well, you know, a lot of the other good. Boys, that's pretty damn good. <laughs> What's that? 75%? Yeah. You're, you're 75%. That's, that's up there. Well, I mean, again, you know, it's not going to get me into good college, right? It's not, you know, it's, it's, the, it's not, the, that's not how, the GPA of morality that's going to get me. You know. What's that? How good were your parents at that college? Never mind. <laughs> Legacy good. Um, um, but I, but that's I think, funny. To, I think to your point, though, it's kind of like, why, why would we even indulge that, that question? Because there's no answer to that anyways. And it, it, yeah, it's serving that's the you. Point of me. Trying, trying to answer that question is not the best use of your time. And and one of the ways to look at morality is to really consider what is a skillful use of your time and attention, right? right? Whatever it is, whatever tradition you come from, you, you could at least agree, we could all agree that there is a time between birth and death. And, and this is this time. And you can use it in a lot of different ways, mm-hmm. right? So is this a good use of that time, right? Is trying to answer that unanswerable question a good use of your time? I mean, Exploring the question, like what does it mean to be a good person? I, I think that's worth some amount of attention. Mm-hmm. You're going to give it so much attention that you can't stand to be around your own children, or uh, you know, enjoy a piece of art or something like that. I don't know. That doesn't seem lose, well thought out to me. Lose sleep over reading philo- philo- uh, philosophical books, or watching oh, yeah. every YouTube video, or asking your friends whether or not they think that this was a good decision or a bad decision. Oh yeah, I've I've seen that actually. I've seen patients come in with uh, you know stacks of philosophy books, you know, and it's you know if you enjoy that sort of thing, if that's interesting to you, that's cool, you know, go for it. But if you're doing it because you have to, because you feel like if you don't, it means you're not a good person. I mean, you could be out planting a you know herb garden or something. It seems like a better use of your time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like there's a lot of a, a lot of personal values acknowledged in this. That you know, trying to move towards a more or is. I mean, kind of to that act language is like, is this thing that you're doing getting you closer towards your goals or is it getting you further away from it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, so um, I know we could talk a lot more about this, but we have a question. Shall we go over the question now or is there anything else that you'd like to add? No, no, it's your, it's your show, man. I'm, I'm, I'll follow your lead. Well, you're the star of the show today. <laughs> People hear my silly voice all the time. Okay. So, um, where is, where is it then? Oh, and you know what? I'm totally going to mess it up because I don't know the name of the person who sent it in. So no named person, I apologize, but I'm going to read your question. So, uh, if we're all ready and I'm going to stutter and it's going to be awkward. Here we go. Question goes thusly says, I'm part of a Facebook group for Christians battling anxiety. And I posted this. Here it goes. Does anybody else struggle with anxiety about doing the wrong thing morally? It can be such that even the tiniest thing can bother you. Like, I don't want to be, or uh, like, I don't want to make a single dishonest penny uh, on my job. And if a customer drops a coin and there's no way to reach them, I, uh, I worry if I'm in the wrong for picking it up. On a larger scale, as a divorced man entering the dating realm again, I worry that making a mistake morally with a girl and going to, or I worry about making a mistake morally and going too far. I'm taking precautions such as, um, uh, such as when I have her at my place to never uh, to never have the girl over if I'm alone, and likewise never be at her place uh, if if we're going to be alone. That could open us up to temptation. That would be too much. Um, but uh, I can get super anxious about this. 
I really think I have an oversensitive conscience. Anyone else? They said, someone recommended your podcast. Which episode should I listen to cover moral anxiety and issues like this? Well, listener, caller, writer, this one. This would be the one to listen to. Well, well, no name, if that's your real name. Um, it, well, first, I mean, it seems obviously uh, obvious that some of the morals group is is shaded by some um, by the religious tradition, yes. right? So there there are concerns about what is appropriate behavior religiously, and that is bleeding over into how. And I think I referenced this this before. It's mm-hmm. like how do you how do you cope with the moral ambiguity around your own ability to decide if you know how to follow your religion? Like, mm-hmm. who are you to decide? Right? Because again, in, in moral scroop land, you're not allowed to be selfish and making this decision for yourself is an act of self-absorption, isn't it? So it's very difficult. Um, a couple of things that came up for me as you were reading that, uh, that description was, um, so the anxiety about doing the wrong thing morally. Mm-hmm. So this is how the moral group gets you. It positions you as different from other people, special, mm-hmm. and entitled to a heads up that other people don't have, meaning people without OCD, uh, they just uh, aren't aware that they need it. <laughs> or you know, the way people with OCD become aware, like, oh, I need this thing. I need to know for certain. Right? Because the answer is, it's impossible. Right, you have your faith that guides you, mm-hmm. and you have your basic common sense that guides you, and you have your personal experience that guides you, and then you take a step, and another step, and another step, and another step, and and that's called walking. And what are you going to walk into? Oh, you don't get to know that. Is it going to be some wonderful relationship and uh, your future and a great job and love and kids, or is it going to be a cross town bus? Like you don't know, and that's what you have to learn to live with. And that has to be okay. That That's life. It might sound really scary, but if you don't open up to to this idea that you're not really the author of this story and the next page is going to turn and what's written on it is not for you to see. Mm-hmm. It's for you to read. When it's there, you go, oh, this is what's happening now. Right? It's the same thing with like health anxiety. Right? And what if I have this disease and that disease, right? But if mm-hmm. you've ever known anybody who got the disease... <coughs> They got it. And then they're like, oh, now I have to deal with this, right? It wasn't part of their plan. There wasn't like, and then when I'm in my late 40s, I'll have, no, it's just, that's what happened, mm-hmm. right? And there was no expectation, really, that they could have planned all that much for it, right? They could have maybe t- taken basically good care of their health in the hopes that that kept it from happening. But that doesn't even always work. And so you can try to be a basically decent human being and still find yourself in a situation where someone accuses you of doing the wrong thing. And maybe you even see their point because mm-hmm. maybe you made a mistake, right? I mean, what is a mistake? It's trying to do the right thing. And then upon reflection, concluding that you were misinformed, but people talk about particularly morally scrupulous people talk about mistakes. Like there are these things that should never happen that only bad people do. Mm. Right. So anxiety about doing the wrong thing morally What's causing that anxiety is this assumption that it's a thing to be figured out as opposed to a thing to be experienced. The idea being that if it turns out that you made a moral misstep, you have to cope with it somehow. I'm sort of channeling a little bit of John Grayson here when Mm -hmm. he talks about the worst case scenario and the uncertainty tolerance and coping with that possibility. And and I would I would agree with that. Not that you necessarily have to focus on that possibility. Devising a plan for every potential outcome. Right. But if it comes to pass, imagine being able to solve the majority of your problems somehow, 
this is like this is like this has become my favorite word. Right? So you're working with people with generalized anxiety who are worrying about you know what about this and what about that. You know, um, what what if what if you're going to figure it out somehow? In, imagine that being like the answer to all of those questions. How am I going to handle it somehow? And imagine actually having the confidence that when somehow comes around, an idea will actually arise mm-hmm. that is useful and helpful because you know you're basically competent human being mm-hmm. and that's part of being self-compassionate too is like making some assumptions that you've made it this far and you know maybe you're not the complete fool that Josie says you are mm. yeah, the other thing that really stands out in that in, in what was written there is um this idea that he's setting up avoidance markers to make sure that you're not led into temptation to do the wrong thing and in this case the wrong thing might be uh uh, sexual behavior before marriage or something violates his religious beliefs. Right. And, uh, and you know a lot about, about scrupulosity. So you can, you can maybe help me bring this one home. But what, what I'm thinking is the whole point of resisting temptation as a virtue mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. that temptation is everywhere. And if you are positioning yourself to avoid all possible temptations, then resisting those temptations is not really all that impressive. Right. It's like, look at me. I've murdered no one. I haven't left the house in 10 years, but I've killed nobody. <laughs> that Success. is not as meaningful, right? As I've been out in the world and a lot of people have made me mad and challenged me, but I've always approached them with kindness. That I felt that feeling. I felt that urge, that pull, and I resisted that urge or that pull. Yeah. 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 So I'm not advising this person necessarily if, if it is indeed in their faith tradition, not appropriate when dating to be alone in a room with, with someone you're romantically interested in, that's, that's fine. But if it is, right. if that is allowed in your faith tradition and the reason you're avoiding it is because you're afraid you'll do the wrong thing, a couple of things are happening there. One is, I, th- I think you might actually be violating your faith in a way because you're supposed to actually be in the presence of temptation and cope with it in a pious manner you're not meant to be living underground right, right. and and the other is you just on the sort of cognitive front you're mm-hmm. setting your brain up to think that you're incompetent you're not incompetent mm-hmm. but you're but who needs to do that right somebody with a long history of impulsively sexually assaulting people should definitely not take that girl back to his place not yet not after a lot of work right because and to that end that person has a lot of evidence and experience to show that in the face of that temptation they don't have the strength to resist it correct right correct and i'm willing to bet this person has the strength yeah i i think that and if they if they're uncertain about that strength and they would like to be more confident in that strength, and they have to do exposure for that. That's how we build confidence. We, we do the things we're afraid of, and we, we learn to trust ourselves, right? Right. And um, I, and you see this across the board with OCD, right? The problem with reassurance seeking isn't that you know nobody should ever get any reassurance in any circumstances. Nothing like that. It's just if you're excessively asking for reassurance, what is it you want your brain to think of that? Right? What 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 rational conclusion could a brain possibly come to about this? Who needs constant reassurance? People who don't know things, people who aren't competent, people who have no ability to guess or reason, they should be asking for reassurance all the time. Are you really that person or are you just afraid and your OCD is bullying you? I might be wrong. Yeah. I might yeah. make the wrong step. I and I've referred to this as future use problem. I think that's kind future of, use problem. Yeah, I like that. That's kind of like the, what, you, what you've talked about with like, you know, we're, we're going to put put off finding this decision 
until we're there. Like we're going to figure it out somehow. That's future use problem. When you get there, you get there. Yeah, future future you has a lot of problems, <laughs> and um, yeah. I think this has been my anecdotal observation. You can tell me if uh, you've noticed it as well, Kevin. For for patients with moral scrupulosity, you know they worry a lot about being a bad person, but they actually it actually tends to be the opposite, right? It tends to be that right. they oh, are yeah. very sensitive, very compassionate, and that they're overflowing with empathy. Right? When they're around somebody who's sad, oh, they're, they're just like drowning in that person's sadness. Right? right? And they're around someone who's anxious; it's very uncomfortable. For them. Mm-hmm. So that sounds like it could be pretty cool, but it also sounds like a little bit of a liability, right? Sounds like, like overwhelming, right? Yeah. So I think that a part of what happens here when you're talking about the future you problem is that they consider the future you. And, you know, people with OCD are very good at, at uh, coming up with stories in their head and actually kind of viewing them like movies so it can feel very real. Mm-hmm. And they picture this future you, and this future you is being criticized and run out of town for being a bad person, and they feel badly for future you. Yeah. So a lot of the compulsions are driven to protect future you. So right. when you say, oh, well, that's future you's problem, I think that's hard for people with moral scrupulosity because they, I don't want future you to have problems. <laughs> and mm-hmm. they start to feel the pain of this version of themselves that doesn't exist yet, and mm-hmm. then try to protect it. And that's where a lot of the compulsions come from. Yeah. And you've referred to, in, in a previous time you were on, talking about the difference between uh, confidence and self-confidence. I don't know if this mm-hmm. is language that you still use in your practice, but uh, you kind of talked about you know, being, being self-confident, that ability to know that you can, you can generally do it. You have the skills, the abilities to work things out. Kind of that maybe you can, you can figure it out somehow. And, Whether and, or not it goes your way, you'll be able to navigate it no, no yes yeah yeah and then this then the confidence kind of general saying something to the effect of th- things can work i can work through this and things you know to a certain degree can work out now maybe i'm misunderstanding that that's per- no, per- no, perfectly no, fine but it's kind of like it's we're not looking for certainty we're looking you know we can build that confidence within ourselves, and that's kind of what i i got a sense again of what you're talking about of you know someone who needs that constant reassurance they don't think that they they don't have that self-confidence that if things were to hit the fan they'd be able to navigate that in a effective meaningful way so mm-hmm. they just think they're going to crumble so they need that outside scaffolding Yes, you know, and you actually just you made me think of another aspect of your um, your listener's question, which is when you're consumed with these thoughts about you know I need to be certain that I'm doing the right thing and I need to protect my future self from the shame that will come if I had done the wrong thing and was led into the temptation. Uh, you know, who you're not thinking about is that girl that is on a date with you, and what it would mean to her if you were to invite her to your place or go to her place and and be alone with her and make her feel special mm-hmm. and make her feel loved mm-hmm. right you, your ocd is painting this very dark and sinister you know picture of like you're gonna lose your mind and you know do the wrong thing violate your faith hurt somebody or whatever and while you're worrying about all of that you're not thinking about how can i make this other person happy and what is their experience with me what would it be like for them to know that I trust myself around them, you know, you know that, that we share the faith and that I trust them around me. And so, so the OCD makes this argument that the good and moral thing to do is to, you know, avoid that situation. Mm-hmm. But you could also argue that the good and moral thing to do is to not avoid that situation. That's what's so maddening about moral scrupulosity. <laughs> you can make both those arguments, right. And yeah. I think, for, you know, maybe for this person, it, it is going to come down to making ultimately a choice and knowing that that choice is going to, work out the way that it works out. 
And we yeah. don't we don't know exactly how it's going to work out. I, I, when you were talking about you know taking away all temptation, I was thinking like, all right, we got to make sure that everybody dressed modestly. Don't dress. Don't show anything. And that's where that like, ooh, I see some ankle. Ooh, <laughs> that's what was coming up in my mind. You're an angle man too, I take it, yeah. <laughs> Who isn't? So uh, I think the listeners learned yeah. too much today. But it's... No, but, but, you, but you're right. I mean, avoidance doesn't actually decrease anxiety in any meaningful way. It gives you maybe like a temporary stay of execution with your anxiety. Sure. But it, it's, setting your, it's setting you up to believe that you can't handle the thing that hasn't happened. So if the thing does happen, you're going to go into it with a lot of anxiety mm-hmm. because you already believe that you know that you can't handle it. And so all the avoidance of temptation that you're talking about, um, I think also you're correct. It sort of translates into the mind thinking that it's starving for temptation because you're withholding it as opposed to dealing with it appropriately. Right. Yeah. And, and within that level of temptation, I think there's, you know, we, we, we're kind of stepping into both worlds and we haven't talked about the coins issue, but, you know, ultimately I would say, just pick up coins, just pick up all the coins. Just, just pick up the coins. Send me the coin. Here's my address. <laughs> Send the coin. It will cost you more to ship it than to keep it. So yep. keep it or do whatever you want with it. Stick them up your child's nose. You must get those things in the mail for, you know, if you donate to something like, uh, you know, save the animals or something. And then, and then you're on their list, right? So then they start sending you a lot of things, right? You know, uh, holiday cards and posters and calendars and stuff in the hopes that you'll donate again. And, and I always marvel at the cost of some of these things. I got something in the mail the other day. I'm not making it. It was, it was just $3 bills. <laughs> like, here's $3. And uh, won't you please give us another hundred? <laughs> you know, like, Keep your I don't know what to do. I, they're actually now, they're sending checks now. Like, this is something like the $3. Okay, I'm going to pocket it, you know, maybe buy some candy for my kids or something like that. Yeah. Right. And, I, but they, they're actually sending checks now. Like, you know, pay to cash, right? You could take it to a bank and sure. deposit the $2.50 into your account. And the walk of shame to that bank and away from that bank. I don't, I, they understand that very few people are going to do it, right? <laughs> they misunderstand the helpfulness of just take a picture of it on your phone through the uh, bank of whatever app. And it's deposits right there. Shameless. I, no, I, can't, I, I can take the, the dollar bills, but I can't get myself to deposit the check. Not even mobile deposit. It just seems like going too far. You know what? We're all making moral decisions. That's right. Well, that falls within my 75%, you know. There you go. And you know what? That 25% is rough. Um, But I mean, all right. So I think there's something to be said about acknowledging this person. They said they know they already have an oversensitive conscience. I think they can say they've acknowledged that. Um, I think there's some Catholic traditions that have that term, having an oversensitive conscience. Excuse me, oversensitive conscience as something to say, yeah, they are going to feel a little bit, they are going to feel that feeling a little bit higher, a little bit harder, and kind of taking that into account, knowing that as they go into these situations, their anxiety might be up. But it doesn't mean that they've done something wrong. It means that the alarm system is a little more sensitive, perhaps, than another person's. But they can still act, I want to say rationally, they can still act consistently with their value system, whatever that might be. I don't think it's unheard of for, let's say, a conservative religious person to you know, create those boundaries of I'm not going to be alone with the opposite sex. I've certainly heard that, and that yeah. is a choice. Yeah. But if your worry is you know, sexual immorality, you can get on the car outside, you can, you can have sex on the bench outside in a park. It's possible people do it. 
I'm not saying this person has to do it in over to overcome this anxiety. And, and the point that you're, you're making is all these safety behaviors is not guaranteeing the safety. It's not guaranteeing. So at the end of the day, it still comes back to there's a line that I need to draw. And is my boundary building serving me or is it just causing and, me do- more distress? And the moral challenge is, do I have the right to trust myself and love myself enough uh, to decide where that line is, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna, I'm gonna recommend yes, you know, because I, but, but I like that's that recommendation. The, that's the question. That's the question that I think a lot of people struggle with: is who am I to make this decision? Right? They might be operating with some very distorted beliefs. I'm nobody. I'm not smart. I, I I'm not worthy. Right? I need mm. somebody else to tell me where the line is drawn. And I think that that's uh, that's a problem. I mean, if you you're talking about having a, a sensitivity to morality if you had any other kind of sensitivity you would have two basic options right i mean it could be like a physical sensitivity or any other kind of sensitivity uh, one would be to try to toughen up right to strengthen that part of you that's sensitive by exercising it and that mm-hmm. we would call that exposure therapy right mm-hmm. put yourself in these morally ambiguous situations you know look at that coin on the floor and say well you know i'll take that nickel maybe i'll donate it or something like that but i'm not going to go running down the street looking for the person who dropped it um so one option would be to strengthen the part that's overly sensitive the other option would be to soothe yourself when your sensitivity is being revealed right mm-hmm. it's very sensitive to cold and so you, you put on a jacket right and you don't beat yourself up and say i wasn't meant for this cold world you know you you know so i think that's the we have to do both of those things in life we have to find that balance between taking care of ourselves you know soothing ourselves understanding our sensitivities and um and, and strengthening whatever part of it we're capable of strengthening so that we suffer less all of this comes down to suffering less right yeah it's it's interesting as you were talking about this I, and I was reflecting on this earlier I had um, Jeremy Schumann on in an episode uh, previously to talk about neurodiversity and he was kind of we were kind of talking a little bit about this this element of recognizing what are what, kind of that that maybe we're oversensitive to that cold right a traditional OCD mm-hmm. therapist would say we just got to get in the freezer and suck it up and deal with it and build that muscle or it's acknowledging that sometimes we feel cold in this area so can I put on a jacket but let that be as far as I'm willing to make it go rather than having to say, every, you know, I have to have fires all around me and I have to have the heater up to 90 degrees or just, just live in Southern California. <laughs> right. If you want to go to a social event and you really value that event and uh, it's just going to be in like a cold environment and you're sensitive to the cold, right? You could not go, but that would really be a great way of dealing with that, right? And go and, and wear a jacket. And then, you know, you might also work with like, is it could is it possible to tolerate maybe a little bit more of the cold than you than you think because you're so used to focusing on the self-soothe side not that you're gonna stop having this sensitivity or that you have to torture yourself with it but can you pay attention to some of the thoughts you're having when you notice that you're a little bit cold if your first thought is i can't handle this this is going to go badly right Right. then you're catastrophizing can you slow it down a little bit um the the uh, it sounds very trite, but it's you know the solution to all of this OCD and in particular moral scrupulosity is take better care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And what you hear from a lot of people, moral scrupulosity is I can't do this, I can't do that, I'm avoiding this, I hate myself, I'm, Ooh, and the yeah. only thing I can think to do is beat myself up. Well, that's not working. All right, so let's come up with option B. Yeah, so how can you take better care of yourself? And you know, how how can you do exposure to your fear of narcissism by thinking about yourself, but in a different way? 
platform. Because remember, when you are letting the OCD keep you hostage and putting you in that hole, you are denying other people your awesomeness. Mm. Other people probably want to get to know you and want you in their lives and care about you. And then you're like, I'm, I'm bad. And they're like, but, but I don't care. You know, to be my friend. No, I'm not good enough to be your friend. But that's not, what about that other person and their needs, right? So you can think about yourself in, in, in an absorbed sort of way that also allows other people in. And not, not as a guilty way of saying, you are depriving other people. Look how terrible you are for depriving other people of your presence and awesomeness. It, it's we're not giving you more things to worry about but anyways that's all that's all part of it i know that you've you've got to get out of here so i really appreciate you taking the time to uh to talk about your experience your knowledge about moral scroop and to answer this question um if uh, if people want to learn more about stuff you're writing where can they find your information where can they might find more about you uh, well, you can always go to ocdbaltimore.com, which will uh, send you to our Shepherd Pratt page. It shows everything that we're doing here at our at our clinic and the outpatient residential and has links to all of the blogs and things like that. If you want to uh, follow me on Instagram, also, the handle is, uh, is ocdbaltimore. You can see my, my musings and memes and stuff on there. And, and um, they, yeah. are a, they are very amusing and m- memey. So, <laughs> Thank you. Well, well done. Thank you. All right, yeah. John. I'll, I'll let you go here. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, be, be good to yourself, Kevin. Thank you. I'll do what I can. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for making it through that episode. Um, again, I love every conversation when uh, John Hirschfield joins. Um, he offers a, 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 just a, a great perspective on how to treat OCD, ways to start viewing yourself in relation to your thoughts and in relation just to the world around you as in, in, in a very humanistic, compassionate way that I think is, is, um, uh, can, can be just wildly beneficial for anybody who's struggling with OCD and anxiety disorder. So uh, I, I will always jump at the chance to have him on. So thank you all for joining me for that. So if you have any further questions about Morals Group, um, go over to fearcastpodcast.com and you can ask me more questions uh, about that. Um, if, uh, if I get enough questions or if I get any questions, I'll reach out to John and see if he can um, give us another hour to talk about or give us any amount of time to talk about this. And hopefully um, uh, we'll be able to do that. So send over your questions to fearcastpodcast.com or over at Instagram. All right, everybody. Until next time, uh, or if you, uh, excuse me, let me jump into the, the end of this for real. Ah, getting ahead of myself. Um, everybody, please remember that the FearCast does not substitute for psychotherapy. If you need a little bit of help in your recovery, go over to fearcastpodcast.com and click on the find help link, and there'll be some information for you there. So until next time, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye. Bye.